What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, stocks are staging a big reversal since this morning's jobs report. All three major averages now positive, with the Nasdaq, the outperformer, up 1.2 percent, Dow's up 233. And falling yields have helped as investors digested that seemingly strong data. The 10-year first touching 489 this morning. That's a new high going back to August 27, now settling back to 4.786. Rick Santelli is here with the very latest on yields for us. Steve Leisman and KPMG's Diane Swank will dig into what today's report is really telling us about the economy and the Fed. And Diana Olick is tracking the fallout on housing and the mortgage market. Welcome to all of you full house today. Before we even dig into that, let's get over to that man right there, Dom Chu, with today's market action, Dom. Uh, This is quite a turnaround, Kelly. And just to kind of put things in perspective and context for you folks here, the S&P is at 42.97, up 39 points. At one point today, post jobs number and everything else, we were actually down 39 points. We got as high as up 47 on the day at one point today. That is how big of a swing it was. At the lows, we took out yesterday's lows. And at the highs, we took out yesterday's highs. That's how big of a swing it's been. So a lot of people watching this turnaround to say, what could it all mean? That's, a, am sure, a conversation we're going to have later on in the show. The Dow Industrial is up, by the way, three quarters of 1%, 33,365, up 246 points. The Nasdaq Composite, as Kelly points out, up nearly one and a quarter percent, 159 points to the upside for the Nasdaq Composite, currently at 13,379. As for this week in review, We all morning have been saying that we're on the precipice of the fifth straight week of declines for the S&P 500. Well, with this strong reversal, we could actually be positive and snap that streak if the pace continues. That's yet to be seen. But where it comes to the out and under performers, believe it or not, in this rising rate environment that we've seen over the course of the last several weeks now, it has been technology and communication services that have led the way higher in the S&P over the last week. Meanwhile, the biggest decliner, no surprise, given the sharp fall in energy prices and fuel and, and oil prices, is the energy sector down 5% on the week so far. So that's your state of play on the sector side for this week. As for the stocks, the best performers in the S&P 500 and what was shaping up to be a down week, Kelly, and this is interesting. Check out the names when it comes to market exchanges yes. and trading. Okay. The best performing stock in the S&P, Kelly, over the last week, Market Access Holdings. They do an online bond trading platform, okay, Mm. bond trading. And then CME Group and CBOE Global Markets, futures and options trading. You get the idea. This volatility right now is leading to some really nice gains here, at least, for market participants like exchange operators and trading platforms, Kel. Thank you for connecting those dots, Dom, because I'm looking at I'm going, the VIX is kind of muted. Stocks are not doing that good, but it's bonds. That's what's driving a lot of this, isn't it? Maybe even commodities. And and the rates trades, right? Right. Futures, Fed funds, futures, that sort of thing. A lot of people are trying to take positions, speculate on what the future direction is going to be. So that's where the... 
least the movement has been to the upside as those exchange operators. That helps explain it. Dom, thank you as always. Our Dominic Chu. Over to Rick Santelli now, who can help explain what's driving all this interest and today's reversal in yields, Rick. Yes, many are questioning the reversal in yields. Let's go to the whiteboard. We see that, boom, right after the number, we spiked up to nearly 490. And we did have strong jobs. 336,000, that's the best since January's 472, second best of the year. Slowing wages seems to be what the market concentrated on, but the long end is guns hot. Remember, at 478, we're up 21 in tens. If you look at 505, 506 in the two-year, it's only up a handful of basis points. But here's the deal, Kelly. If you look at what happened on Wednesday, here's what technicians would tell you. We ran out of gas just shy of 490. Today, after the number, very similar. And when they reassess some of the weaker details, 3.8, two months in a row, that is the highest unemployment rates since Jan 22. Two months of up two-tenths on average hourly earnings month over month, lowest since Feb 22. If you look at 4.2 on year-over-year average hourly earnings, lowest since Jan of 21. I think that that failure is a temporary issue. I wouldn't look at it have long-term significance, but I think it is important, especially considering the reversal, don't underestimate U-turns on a Friday afternoon. And one other thing Dom talked about, when you have higher highs and lower lows on a guns hot day in equities, if we get a close that's higher or a close that's lower, it becomes an outside day with prioritized technical significance. Back to you. But just to be clear, Rick, that significance points to yields having peaked now or with still with potential to go higher? I would think that what that means to me is that we're going to consolidate going into the closing hour, most likely near four and three quarters. But it doesn't change the big picture. Long maturities are still guns hot. And anybody more worried about a possible quarter point more in Fed funds should definitely make, pay much more attention to the long end as it aims towards 5% and beyond. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli. Now, here's a quick recap of that jobs report. Non-farm payrolls up by 336,000 in September, blowing past forecasts, which were half that number. Unemployment rate unch at 3.8%. Average hourly earnings went up only two-tenths. Employment for August and July was also revised higher. Will all of this force the Fed to hike again in November? My next guest says no. Joining me now is Diane Swank. She's chief economist at KPMG, our senior economic reporter Steve Leisman is here with us as well. Welcome to both of you. Diane, take it away. Well, I think this was a great jobs number, and I'm glad to be wrong this time. I think, Steve, if you did the calculation, <laughs> I got a D. So, you know, um, to get a D and get have the economy be much stronger, I'll take it after doing well on the jobs reports before and the revisions, finally reversing course on the upside. The important thing in this is, first of all, that 3.8 percent um, unemployment rate, it's not because we had more layoffs. We actually had fewer layoffs during the month. And in fact, we're absorbing the new workers that are coming into the labor force. Uh, much of the increase in participation is this really quirky thing with teenagers that is hard to capture in August and, and September and that buoyed participation rate. That said, this is a great um, number overall. 95% of the job gains in two sectors that had been lagging, leisure and hospitality and in healthcare. That healthcare was very late to reach the previous peak. We finally 
recapped, recaptured the previous peak in restaurant hires. And that matches up with new business formation has pivoted from online retailers coming out of the pandemic to now food services and construction. Those food services coming out of the urban areas, going into suburban areas, that's buoying overall employment. So you're sort of seeing what should have been the hardest mile of the marathon for the Fed has become a relay race, where now you see sectors that were lagging, including the government sector yeah. picking up. I thought that was quite striking. And Steve, I just want to, uh, several people have highlighted, uh, Bob Bassani highlighted this, Rick Reeder uh, as well was saying, listen, this is a report very much driven by non-cyclical parts of the economy, by education, by healthcare. And does that change kind of our conclusions about, you know, what's going on with the business cycle? I don't think so, Kelly. There were definitely some quirks in there and we saw those coming. Uh, Diane, I don't grade you. I, I grade myself poorly. I wish there was something I could go back and see. I miss this. I miss that, that there was some kind of indication of a strong number coming. I mean, I think the claims numbers spoke to an even type of jobs report, maybe one around 200,000. Uh, the home base uh, high frequency data was a bit stronger. That was something to pay attention to. The ADP certainly sent you the wrong way. So I'm going over my, uh, my yeah. I'm going over my work, too. So I'm not grading you on this. But I, I don't know, uh, Kelly, I do think that the revisions higher, if this were one strong out, outlying number and they hadn't gone, revised the prior two months higher, I'd say take this with a big grain of salt. I, of course, take any number with a grain of salt. But the idea that the three-month moving, three-month average of job growth, which we at age 29 this morning we thought was 150,000, and now it's something like 266,000, you have to think the economy is doing better than we thought. You have to think that uh, the yep. job market is not as soft as the Fed hoped it would be. And then after you, you say those things, you have to wonder how much concern is the Fed going to have that they're not getting the softening in the job market, in which case you say, well, OK, maybe they'll be satisfied with the idea that wages are not going up strongly. But I don't know that that's the case. I think they're still going to be sort of looking at that last rate hike of the year as still a real possibility, but watching what's happening with the 10 year to say, you know what? Maybe we don't have to do it if the inflation numbers remain tame. What would, Diane, just remind me, what would the strike effect Bingo. be in, in all of this? UAW, I think we were waiting till the next one to really see that. And I just want to mention as well that yes. Kaiser healthcare worker strike looks like it may now broaden from three days, possibly another 10 days as they move into the weekend. And so I, any impact from that yet? Um, not from the Kaiser strike yet, and the UAW strike will show up in the October report as long as it continues into next week. We did see the strike effects of the writers and SAG strike. That broadened, and that's also where some of the weakness in wages were. That Steve's a little bit, you know, are we, is that really something that's going to stick? I think he's right on that. But in the broader context, I think Steve's also right in this is where I don't think the Fed is going to do another rate hike because the bond market, as of yesterday, Mary Daly was saying, basically, we've got equivalent of another rate hike already in there from the bond market. And as long as the bond market stays buoyant, as uh, Rick thinks it's going to be, those bond yields will do a lot of the heavy lifting for the Fed. But that doesn't change the Fed's higher for even higher for longer. And, you know, the second half of the year, we're now taking rate hikes out, rate cuts out of next year. And we've delayed when the Fed is actually going to cut rates. And I think that is important because that's where the Fed's at right now. And that's what this data tells you. A stronger economy, even as inflation is cooling, they don't want to risk 
backtracking and losing ground on the inflation improvements we've seen. But on the flip side of it, they also don't want to, this stronger economy is justifies higher rates. Mm. And I think that's something that gets lost in translation. And also the Fed is thinking about the non-inflationary rate is right. now moving up on the other side of this as well. Ke Kelly, uh, could, could you all at home write this down so we don't have to repeat it? I really hate having to do this, but striking workers do not appear in the household survey so there'll be no impact on the unemployment right. rate because they're employed but not at work. They will show up in the employment survey, the payroll side of things, because they're not employed. They will not show up in claims because they have voluntarily right. left their work. So that's what's going to happen. You won't see it in the claims numbers. You won't see it in the household numbers. You will see it next month in the payroll numbers. Does will, that work? That, that's helpful, Steve. The knock-on effects yes. where we've seen some part suppliers and things like that. I mean, that would start I, to I show up. I meant to or... mention that. Right. You will see some impact, I believe. By the way, the manufacturing numbers have been very strong. I'm kind of surprised. Um, but you had the last two months pretty good manufacturing numbers after a lousy July. But it should be to show up there, the knock-on effects. And all that is just people simply losing their job. And so that will not be a complication. Just to poke one, try to try to poke one more hole in this, and I just want to bounce this off both of you. We've, we've known that because of the pandemic, the seasonal adjustments are a little quirky, especially around teachers going back in September. And the fact that education and healthcare have been so strong, Diane, is there any chance that all of a sudden this, get, this all gets revised away, even the strength in claims the last four weeks or so? Do you think that there's anything fluky going on with that? Well, the education stuff, I'm, I'm surprised that we're getting as much, but it was mostly in state rather than in local mm. education, and that's colleges. So True. I think that's probably real. That said, I do think there's this quirk. I mean, a not seasonally adjusted teenage participation rate fell in August and September. Mm. And yes, we don't know that the seasonal adjustments are right. So these are quirky data. That said, you know, historically, Steve knows this, usually the August number is a cooler number and gets revised up. And this year proved that true, even though we had eight months of downward revisions before it and this reverse set over the course of several months. I think that's important. Um, also, I would point out this UAW strike is very different than the strikes we had in the past. The UAW has been very careful. We've counted up so far 2,600 collateral damage workers in terms of people who are furloughed wow. as a result of the strike. It has not had the kind of huh. spillover effects that we've seen in Morgan, other strikes. And so Morgan we'll be watching Stanley, that closely. Huh. Morgan Stanley just said the cumulative effect is going to be 0.1% on used car inflation. So not a big number there. But Ke Kelly, give me a second here to ask Diane. Diane, more people working, hours worked about the same. Do you pencil in higher GDP from today's numbers? Um, <laughs> first of all, the third quarter is over 5% right now. Putting you it's on the spot, it's, I know. It's the strongest quarter. It, no, yeah, it's, it's strong. Yeah, it's strong. And even the momentum into the fourth quarter now is still yeah, solid. Right. Um, and this is a, a year, this was Taylor Swift, Beyonce, you name it, um, you know, all of that. But, but Taylor's day, not touring anymore, Diane. You can't, it's not Taylor anymore. Oh, She's not oh, touring. Know, you, gotta, you know what? You know what? I know. But, it, but the important point here is that we've still got plenty of momentum and we've got a cushion on savings. Those revisions, those benchmark revisions over doubled the, the excess savings amassed during the pandemic. So we have more savings that we didn't realize we had. And that's really going to help us as yeah. those student loan payments come due. And so I'm not as worried about that being the headwind that I thought it would be. The revisions also changed our view, not only of history, 
yeah. sort of going forward. Kelly, well, did you think you were going to have to talk about Taylor Swift when you were covering economics over the journal? <laughs> you know, I, that was I not in my bingo card. For the Barbie, but, you know. <laughs> She's in the movie theaters now, so we've got a few more months maybe of, of economic more stimulus. Taylor, more yeah, more, so more Taylor, more yes. GDP. <laughs> Diane Swank, Steve Leisman, always appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much talking about the full impact of this jobs report. Let's turn to the impact on the mortgage market, shall we? Mortgage rates have climbed yet again today. It usually happens with about a one-day lag. But let's get to Diana Olick. She can run us through the numbers. Diana. Well, Kelly, mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury, so no surprise, it is starting to get ugly. The average rate on the 30-year fixed moved 15 basis points this morning higher to 7.84%, according to Mortgage News Daily. That's up more than a half of a percentage point in just one week and nearly a full percentage point from the start of September. Not great news for the home builders, which really had to struggle to get out of the red this morning, but which are firmly in the red from a month ago. To get a picture, though, of just how much affordability has been crushed, you know I'm going to do the math. So if you're buying a $400,000 home today with 20% down on a 30-year fix, you are paying roughly $900. $165 more a month, more than you would have just two years ago when rates were around 3%. And that doesn't even factor in that the same house is now 17% more expensive than it was two years ago before the Fed started raising rates and 40% more expensive than the start of the pandemic. Now, we are hearing there is a little bump in supply coming on the market now, but it is unlikely going to be enough to counter the higher costs. We'll see, though, if these higher rates start to take the heat out of home prices. Kelly? Real quickly, when we see, because, you know, it must drive you crazy. We see uh, the mortgage rates over 8%. Where is everyone else drawing these numbers from? Why is our 7.84? Well, so we're from Mortgage News Daily, which runs the numbers every morning by about noontime. What we get on the Freddie Mac and on an MBA is you get weekly averages. And from Freddie Mac, it's from the last week or the last days before Wednesday. And MBA is the week before. So they're lagging. We're lucky enough to have these daily. I, I totally agree. Diana, thank you. We always actually stick around. I want to talk to Matthew Graham as well now. <laughs> He's from Mortgage News Daily and MBS Live. And he says it's no longer just about the Fed here, everybody, for mortgage rates. They are at the whim of other numbers and events as well. Uh, let's bring him in. Matthew, it's great to have you on the program. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here, Kelly. And we should emphasize this is always true. Mortgage rates don't price off of the Fed funds, right? They price off of the 10-year, which is affected by tons of other global events and things going on, but especially so right now, right? Yeah. And just a, a minor uh, point of order, they don't necessarily price off the 10-year. They correlate highly with the 10-year over time, but they actually price off mortgage-backed securities, mm -hmm. which are uh, very closely related to the 10-year in general, but have some distinct differences since the Fed started uh, not buying well, uh, bonds. let's get real wonky, shall we? What other chance would I have than talking Good. to you and Diana? Because now there's, uh, you know, kind of um, efforts making the rounds to say maybe Fannie and Freddie need to do something here to bring down the cost of mortgage rates in particular. What can be done by the marketplace to try and cushion what otherwise has been a, a mortgage rate that's highly tethered to what's happening with bond yields? Yeah, and this is a frustrating thing, and, and my audience specifically isn't going to like to hear what I have to say about this, but nothing's going to be done at any official level to try to ease the pain of rates. The housing market has been central to the inflation problem that we have. You know, we can talk about affordability being rough for new buyers, and that's very true, and that's a pain point. But at the same time, we have to consider what happened in 2020 through the middle of 2022 when people were able to refinance at two and a half, three percent rates, 
and free up a ton of cash flow that has subsequently driven inflation and and that has resulted in a a crankier Federal Reserve and rates moving higher. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of love from an official level, whether that's from Fannie Freddie or the Fed itself. Diana, do you agree? Because it would seem that, you know, housing is always the one place where officials really want to come in to the rescue. And we've seen tons of efforts over the last couple of decades. Some work out well, some backfire uh, to try to improve affordability. And affordability is worse now than it's ever been. Right. And I'll tell you, I get dozens of emails in my inbox every day from various you know, organizations saying the government has to do something. We have to get affordability back. You have all of the associations. I don't have to tell you how much the realtors are getting hammered by this and how you know, real estate agents are kind of fleeing, fleeing their jobs right now because they have nothing to sell. But I think Mac makes a great point, and that is that so much of inflation right now was driven by housing. We're seeing it it's still in the rents, even though rents are coming down a bit. But in home prices, I mean, up 40 percent. That is astonishing in just three years. And so I agree that I don't think anybody at a government level is going to do anything to bring back those rates to a point where, you know, home prices can just climb higher and higher. The question is, what can you do on the lower down payment, on the FHA side, on on perhaps some kind of programs to help people afford housing without bringing rates down to these abnormally low levels? I mean, 2.75 is really just going to create a market that's going to be on fire. You're never going to be able to put that out. Out, Kelly. And the argument is from Dave Stevens. He was a, uh, kind of briefly Obama's FHA commissioner, and he says that Fannie and Freddie should return to the MBS market, Matthew, and that, listen, we're going into an election year, and uh, maybe somebody's going to look at this and say, yeah, maybe they should, because the spread between mortgage rates and, I'll, yeah, I'll say the tenure, but it's wider than it has historically been, and the Fed doesn't look like it's coming back into the market anytime soon. Yeah, it's not coming back to the market because it realizes that it uh, maybe accidentally, maybe unavoidably uh, played a role in driving inflation by yes. keeping its foot on the accelerator in 2021 with MBS purchases. Um, so I think that uh, they're seeing, I mean, even recent Fed comments have said, yeah, the housing market is doing kind of what we want it to do. And that's unfortunate. The Fed might say that. And the Fed can say that and and try to understand the macro effect. But you don't think the political side of this in Washington with the housing market into the election year, someone might not say, you know what, Fannie and Freddie, you go buy MBS then and bring that rate down. Well, I think Diana nailed that point. And uh, and there can be a push for initiatives that help affordability without trying to manipulate the broader financial market. And that's really the ill effect of uh, fiscal stimulus and especially relentless QE in 2021. So uh, that's right on. I mean, we have to if we're going to help affordability, it has to be at a fiscal level. Yeah, and maybe at a a more sustainable way is kind of the point underlying all of this. Thank you both. Uh, Really appreciate it. Historic moment here for housing and mortgages. Matthew Graham of MBS Live and, of course, our Diana Olick. Still to come, ExxonMobil nearing a deal to buy Pioneer Natural Resources, according to sources. Our next guest says it makes complete sense, and this could be the first in a massive consolidation way for the energy space. Bill Smead joins us next to make his case. Plus, the Nicey Airline Index hovering near its lowest level in a year and tracking for its 10th week of losses in 11. Later on, we'll look at the headwinds facing the group and the names that are best positioned as earnings season kicks off next week. As we head to break, here's a broad look at the markets. Dow's up 308 points, nearly 1%. Right now, a little better than that for the S&P. NASDAQ leading the way up 1.5%. Even the Russells are up a percent today, with the 10-year yield reversing back below 480. We're back after this. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Pioneer surging 11% today as ExxonMobil is reportedly closing in on a deal to buy the shale driller for $60 billion. It would be Exxon's biggest acquisition since the mobile merger in 1999, and Exxon shares are only fractionally lower. My next guest is all for it and hopes it's the first of many more big deals to come. Joining me now is Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management. Great to have you here, Bill. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Sometimes I feel like a person such as yourself would come on and get mad and say, you know, mega deals are, you know, they destroy value in the long run. And this is all the bankers just you're totally on the opposite side of this. You, you love it. And just just talk to us about why. Well, I was in Europe for a week, two weeks ago, promoting what we do. And uh, in Europe, they, they are so anti uh, oil and gas and fossil fuels uh, and and that attitude has caused a deeply out of favor position for this industry, despite the need we'll have for the next 30 or 40 years, whether it be to produce gasoline or whether it is to produce electricity. So so people are out of line. And the situation is the great big companies have provided liquidity to the largest investors, therefore, they trade at very high multiples in relation to the the, the smaller large companies and the larger uh, the, the 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 smallest large cap companies in the industry. So if if you go out there and poke holes in the ground, you're going to have every environmentalist and every 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 ESG person in the world condemning you. Whereas if you acquire a company that already has production right. uh, to extend extend the life of your business, you're avoiding that grief. Although you are going into Lena Khan's crosshairs, at some point, do you think she sort of sits up and says, wait a minute, no, especially because what was the other, there was another deal in the energy patch, and if there's more to come, wouldn't they get involved? I, 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 I heard Sarah Eisen say that. I was watching the show this morning, uh, watching this morning, and I heard Sarah Eisen say that, and I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the, the federal government has made this industry a nightmare and the body politic has made this a nightmare. Uh, you know, there is there's no monopoly. They're trying to convince people that 
you're going to switch to all electric vehicles and there will be no need for gasoline. Why would you care what somebody in this industry does? They're all expecting the industry to die. Well, here's you know, so, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who has slammed the prospective deal between uh, Exxon and Pioneer in an email statement circulating Friday saying, quote, Exxon has a big pile of cash that it made by gouging consumers. He's a Rhode Island uh, Democrat. Now it's looking to use that money to double down on polluting the planet, pushing even more costs and dangers on consumers. So there's your political uh, line or, or raison for the administration to pick it up. Yeah. And that's like the person addicted to cigarettes uh, mad at uh, Philip Morris for raising the price from 20 cents to five dollars from 1970 to 2010. In other words, they are creating the problem. The people that are criticizing this are the ones that have created the problem. They are restricting the supply of the commodity and only going to drive the prices higher as time goes forward. So that is the, the, the height of hypocrisy right well, there. But that's politics. My point is, could they come in? And you're right. Other, look, the fact that we have this statement to me is the first sign that maybe they would start to get involved because the Exxon Danbury deal, I don't think there were there was any pushback to if we started to see more no. mergers. And, and is it overall going to raise oil production or lower it? I mean, what, what are it, the numbers it, there? All this does is it extends uh, the the, the uh, a productivity of the property owned by Exxon so that they can provide the fossil fuels that people need. That it, 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 they are attempting to make their company longer life in an investment and body politic market that wants to shorten the life of the industry. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just, they're, they are trying to keep themselves alive and, and provide the customers what they need. 40% of electricity is produced by natural gas in the United States of America. Coal-fired is is 19.5 and will probably be zero in 10 years. So where are you going to get the electricity? Sure. We're not we're not going to there's no wind and solar miracle that's going to replace that. If this does happen and the deal's been rumored before, so who who knows if it's you know going to come to head this time. But there's also so many great, uh, interesting things to say about Pioneer itself and Sheffield and so forth. But actually, Bill, since you're here on Jobs Friday and I think your point is very clear, I want to briefly talk to you about the jobs report and whether you think it's a mirage or if the economy strength is more, you know, uh, long lasting and why you're not. Sell I'm going to be on you about the home builders again because more people are starting to bail on them. Well, well, we 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 uh, we've said for years, uh, first of all, there's 40 percent more millennials than there was in the prior generation. They were slow to get started. They, they're going now. More people got married last year and this year than any year for the last 10 years. And they're going to form their households regardless of whether houses are unaffordable or not. Uh, so it's necessity spending. They used to do discretionary spending. We had a crummy economy in the 2010s mm -hmm. because the, the largest adult population group was only buying Chipotle burritos, craft beer. And That's Lululemon. all they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Lululemon and traveling to Tuscany to ruin their, their age 55 vacations. So, so uh, it, 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 here, here we are. Uh, they are a, a causing a stronger economy, which we predicted. We have said this all along, yes. that they would. And that causes grief for the affordability. But I think in the prior show, they said something about record unaffordability. No, I paid 13.5% for my first mortgage in 1983. 
The, yes, the but your home boomer. price was like seventy thousand dollars. <laughs> now they have to pay eight percent with a home price of you know four hundred and eighty. I understand, but but the incomes are also up in that same kind of multiple. Yeah. What people uh, uh, what people spend on gasoline and what they spend on mortgages as a percentage of what they're doing uh, is affected right now by a lack of supply. And we own the companies that are going to solve that supply dilemma. Right. But again, we're, we're five to 10 year holders and it's going to take five to 10 years to solve that dilemma. And, and we'll have to sit Fair through. Uh, and the, and the it, last it, piece, it, it, now they all have hi ho, hi ho. It's off to work. We go, as you said, there's no more work from home. And that seems to be the last puzzle piece. Yeah, there you go. Bill, thank you. We appreciate that, Go that, ahead. Go that ahead. Takes, that, takes, that takes gasoline to get them to work right now. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Smead with Smead Capital Management bringing it full circle. I appreciate your time. So it'd be very interesting to see if that deal goes through. Could be an interesting weekend. Coming up, higher rates are wreaking havoc on insurance premiums across the country. Believe it or not, some people's payments are now higher than even those mortgages we were just discussing. We'll break down the cost to consumers and investors ahead on The Exchange. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Good afternoon and welcome to your CNBC News update. The largest health care strike in U.S. history is on its third and final day. But an agreement hasn't been reached. Picketers span four states and include 75,000 Kaiser Permanente health care workers from a coalition of unions. The strike scheduled to end Saturday morning, but the union said they could issue a 10-day warning that could launch another round of strikes in November. Bargaining sessions have been scheduled for the end of next week. The Iowa Democratic Party will hold its caucus on January 15th, but said it won't release results until Super Tuesday in March. It still needs approval from the National Committee as Iowa tries to retain its role as the first state in the presidential nominating calendar. And the civil fraud trial against former President Donald Trump and his associates is done for the week. Proceedings will resume next Tuesday after the holiday when former CFO Alan Weiselberg is scheduled to take the stand. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, Citi is slashing its estimates for the big four airline carriers right as earnings season is about to kick off. The analyst behind that call joins us to explain next on The Exchange. Welcome back. It's been a rough few months for the airlines with the summer travel season coming to a close and fuel prices on the rise. United, Delta and Southwest all down more than 20 percent in the third quarter, with American leading the slump down nearly 30 percent. My next guest recently lowered his earnings estimates and price targets on all four, noting more turbulence ahead. Joining me now is Stephen Trent. He's a managing director at City covering the airline sector. Steve, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. This would be the, the main. I, mean, I remember Delta's like 16 day win streak earlier in the spring going into the summer. The, these stocks turn around on a dime. Now it's the other way. It's coming down. What makes you think this is not necessarily a buying opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So I think within the space, uh, I would say we're seeing uh, 
some bifurcation where U.S. domestic does look a little choppier. Uh, we do have question marks about what should happen to the economy and whether or not the group can sustain demand. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, international long haul is doing very well right now. Mm -hmm. Transatlantic and transpacific, uh, the numbers look great. Um, so I think when we think about this interplay between revenue and expense, uh, you do have some push to cut expense. It's fine to have a lighter cart, but a lighter cart's useless if you don't have a horse to pull it. Sure. Um, so, you know, what we are seeing the best horsepower right now is on the long haul side. And that benefits remind me again. I mean, I, this is where I would think Delta United, those kinds of more internationally geared carriers versus some of the domestics. And is that kind of the strategy you'd recommend that people kind of have with the airlines for what, the next three months, six months or so? Absolutely. So international long haul is doing great. If you're a network carrier today and you have uh, very good transatlantic and transpacific metal, uh, that's going to give you some nice tailwind. At the same time that's happening, I think the network carriers uh, are also benefiting from uh, this spooling up of their co-branded card revenue. Uh, while all of that has happened, we have seen a shift since the pandemic started. Most people are only in the office three days a week. That's changed the way people travel and people purchase tickets and it's supported economy plus. So if you're a low cost or ultra low cost carrier, and you don't have Economy Plus, that puts you in a tougher spot. So we do like those network carriers uh, with the notion that American Airlines is, is heavily levered. Some of, well, well so those, there's two kind of things to ask about right now, and maybe the most important one is leverage, uh, balance sheet, you know, what's going on there. The other piece of this has been the credit card business has been a huge driver of revenues, if not earnings, for some of these carriers. And is that necessarily sustainable? Yeah, so I think on the co-branded card spend, uh, that is, uh, it, it does look like it has legs. So it would be disingenuous to me to say there is no risk from everything going on. But when we think about what's happening today, what's probably going to occur next year relative to what this all looked like pre-pandemic and those network carriers have really gone a long way, we would argue, uh, in de-risking their earnings stream. So if, for example, if one looks at uh, pre-tax margins for the network carriers today versus 2019 and compares that to how the discount carriers performed then versus now, it, it, they've essentially flipped, hmm. partially on the co-branded card side, wow. partially because the, uh, the network carriers uh, definitely have momentum now. And those network airlines that have managed to not uh, get too deep into leverage, we think are very well positioned. You know, United Airlines would be a good example. So it, that's funny. They, some of the network carriers sound like credit card businesses with an airline attached, but, but be that what it may, last quickly on the leverage issue or on the balance sheet issue, a company like United, which you otherwise like, what are the potential earnings squeeze it could face from higher, rate, from higher rates? Yeah, certainly. So uh, there is some differentiation in the group with respect to uh, the extent to which they have fixed rate debt versus floating rate debt. Um, you can have some nuances there. And then from an economic perspective, of course, certainly there's a chance we're wrong on Trans-Pacific and Transatlantic giving them a boost. So if that revenue slows down, you know, then we'd need to start thinking about how well seat mile costs are managed. And I think across the group, uh, that's been an interesting challenge between uh, supply chain challenges you've had with the OEMs, uh, higher labor costs. Yeah. So, 
those are factors absolutely that can affect um, the ability to deal with financial leverage beyond what's happening with interest rates. Yeah. But uh, Well, you listen, know. they're all going to be bailed out because passengers are going to be 5% lighter thanks to Ozempic. And uh, <laughs> that's what I don't know if you saw the report the other day suggesting such by a colleague of yours. Oh, um, I did not see that, but I will <laughs> let them defend that thesis. Yes, they did. Steve, thanks so much for your time today and the warning on some of the factors to most watch out for. We appreciate you coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. Stephen Trent with City. Coming up, rising rates helping insurers' investment portfolios. The street is taking notice. This name up 30% since January and named a top pick by KBW. We will reveal it next. Speaking of rising rates, it's been a rough week for utilities with AES down 20% since Monday and having its worst week since the start of the pandemic. Got a downgrade to neutral at UBS today. Michael Darda yesterday said he'd be a buyer of some of these utility names. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Higher rates are giving insurers a boost. The KIE Spider Insurance ETF up 8% since the Fed started hiking rates last March. And Arch Capital is one of the top performers year to date, up more than 30% as rates continue to climb. That was the mystery chart we just teased. Contessa Brewer is here with a look at how long the run could last. Contessa, some of the names leading the way, and maybe you can mention why premiums can't come down if they're raking in all this money. Well, that's exactly Right, but th that has to do with uh, two things, Kelly. It has to do with inflation and it has to do with the intensity and the severity of catastrophes. Let me back up. Higher interest rates translate generally to higher return on equity for insurers because they focus on fixed income investments. Marsh's former CEO has said, <clears throat> for every one percentage point of yield, property casualty insurers see 4% improvement in combined ratio. KBW analyst Mayor Shields told me his picks are reinsurers and casualty insurers because they have more time between collecting those premiums and when they pay out in claims. So he points to Everest, Renaissance Re, and Arch Capital, which you just mentioned, along with primary carriers AIG and Chubb. Now, life insurers have an even longer lag time, or what they call tail in the industry. Warren Buffett calls it a float. Investors have been pouring into their product lines, their annuities. In fact, last year, they set a record for annuity sales. Fixed annuity sales still climbing. KBW tells me that life insurers are beginning to see a 2% improvement on return on their new investments. Analyst Ryan Kruger's top picks. Corbridge, that's a spinoff of AIG. It sells a lot of fixed annuities. Unum, which sees an improvement in its legacy long-term care insurance line. And alternative asset manager, are you ready for this? Apollo, because it gets 50% of its proceeds from Athene, which also sells a lot of fixed annuities. Life insurance, though, they have credit risk, and they're concerned that higher rates may actually lead to a more volatile credit cycle. Corporate bonds are their biggest investment, and they're concerned about snowballing defaults. So commercial mortgage investments are a particular worry as developers face new borrowing costs and skyrocketing cost for insurance. Wow, that's fascinating about Apollo. And we'll see, maybe at some point down the road, it could help translate into some uh, pressure off the consumer. Contessa, thank you very much, Sure, Contessa Brewer. Still to come, one investor seeing big opportunities in the muni market, and it's in bonds backed by banks rather than government agencies. Details next. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.